Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Witherslack Group, experts in special education and care. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Sunday Social with Teachers Talk Radio uh, with Yasmin Omar, who is going to be joining us in just a second uh, while she does so. Uh, just to remind you that this show is sponsored by Witherslack Group, who are one of the partners of Teachers Talk Radio. And uh, I would invite you to uh, check out their website, witherslackgroup.co.uk. Uh, you can hit the forward slash events, and they've got a series of free events coming up. Uh, all the way through, actually, uh, all the way through the uh, the year. They've got several coming up even next month. Many of them are free. Um, so uh, they've got webinars on dyslexia, understanding dyslexia, neurodiversity, um, autism. Uh, they're a leading provider of specialists at education and care. So I definitely recommend checking them out if you're listening back to this. Uh, that's with the Slack group .co. UK. I'm now going to hand over to Yasmin. Hey Tom, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Um, I hope everyone's doing well today. Um, it's so good to see that Melissa's here today. Uh, so today's show is just on, um, you know, teachers with disabilities or long-term chronic illnesses and, um, you know, a part two, like a follow-up from the session that we were doing last time. Hopefully some of the people that were here last time will join us as well. But in the meantime, I've got Melissa, who I'm so happy to be interviewing today. Melissa, can you hear me? I can't, yes. Good morning, Yasmin. How <laughs> are you today? Melissa. I'm really good, thank you. How are you? Tired. Very, very tired. It's, I, you know, I completely forgot that I'm leaving the one, half, one week half term break. I am so fatigued because I've got three small people. Yeah. Also known as my children. Yeah. Who have completely, who have completely removed all sense of being from me because they're hard work. But I love them to bits. They yeah. are extremely hard work. But enough about me and my trash life. Good morning, everyone who who is here, and good morning for the people who are soon to come. It's lovely to meet you all. I'll finally get to reveal who I am, my voice to you. Yeah, Melissa. Last time, um, so uh, when I ran the session last time, I think Melissa might have accidentally joined from her browser, but I just kept getting floods and floods of messages from her saying, I can hear you. How can I speak? What do I press? And like, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly, like, I just couldn't leave the show to get her to log in and then click on the spaces whilst logged in. But anyway, it doesn't matter. You're here now, Melissa. So um, I thought it'd be a good place to start with. Obviously, I've uh, put out a tweet explaining that you're a teacher that has MS. Um, for anyone that doesn't know what MS is, it's multiple sclerosis. I talked about having the same condition myself um, two weeks ago. But Melissa, I just thought maybe you could tell us about um how you were diagnosed like how old were you how did you um how did you find out that you had ms let's start there oh, good morning again to everyone um i found out i had ms in 2012 it began well 2011 i had completed my nqt year and i thought it was absolutely brilliant i was doing my nqt over in Hayes and Harlington and finally getting to leave that joint. It was so far away because I live in East London, traveling to Northwest London 
doing a two-hour journey there, two-hour journey back every day, apart from Saturday and Sunday and school holidays. Um, that I, is really stressful. Sorry, Melissa, it's quite fast. No, but I no, can't okay. fathom such a journey um, for teaching every day, especially on public transport, because I grew up in Ealing, Ealing Broadway, and Hayes and Harlington, I would say, would be... A kind of a strenuous journey even from there like it's quite easy if you were to drive to Hayes and Harlington but it even like on the train it's just quite an awkward journey so for you to have made that journey all the way from East London like I couldn't imagine that that sounds really exhausting it really was but it was worth it because it, everything came at a time when there was a massive crash in 2009 um financial crash and we people who had finished their PGCEs, finished their NQT year, had to find somewhere to to have a job. Now, I've not finished my NQT two years, I should say. I had to find a job elsewhere. Um, and I thank God I had to find that job elsewhere because it was too far for me. I did my NQT in Hayes in Harlington. It was a wonderful experience. It taught me how to behaviour manage because the kids there are wild. Um, a lot of them I mean there's a lot of children at the time there were lots of children who were related to one another right Um, yeah and their parents were related to one another and what I tended to come across high levels of SEN Mm -hmm. high levels of behaviour raw SEN I mean, to the point where I got kicked in the head by one of my students. Gosh. And I didn't know I had MS at the time. <laughs> I was just like, oh, okay, shocking. I've been kicked in the head. That's really shocking. But going back to the point about a lot of them being related, like I went to a school where there weren't that many like Somali kids in my year. But, um, you know, just generally a lot of us kind of looked alike and we would claim to be cousins or related when we actually weren't. Like I remember I actually went to a different school in year seven and there was just random Somali boy in my year that I was really good friends with and we told everyone we were twins but like raised in different families to explain why we had different surnames and honestly like for for a long time I mean I left that school in year seven but for a long time people just thought it was true so you know Melissa maybe I mean I didn't grow up too far from Hayes so maybe they weren't actually related and they just kind of used to pretend that they were because they're from the same country I'm not talking about Somalis or even Asians yeah. I'm talking about Caucasians okay Yes, that's what that's what I found shocking because you just think, huh? This is this is not right. This this doesn't happen amongst the Caucasian community, but it was happening. Right, it was oh. happening. Okay, so um, so continue then. How so? Were you on that uh, placement when you found out that you had MS? So what happened? No, no, I I resigned that. I did my NQT, passed it with flying colours, and um, then I got a job in. Tower Hamlets. The school was Sir John Cass Foundation and Redcoats. Okay. That was my liberation because that's just, that's not too far. That's Bethnal Green. Right. And I was amazed to be back in East London. It was just amazing. But anyway, I woke up one day and I thought, hold on a minute. I can only see out of one eye. There's something wrong with my glasses. I, I'm, I was saying to myself, there's something very wrong with my glasses. I've got to get to Specsavers get to Specsavers and speak to someone there because clearly there's something wrong with my glasses. I did not think at all that there was something wrong with me. Right. Being the teacher that ever 
busybody teacher who wants to get involved with everything and do everything. Um, I had all my marking to do, all my planning to do. It took me nearly three weeks to get to Specsavers to oh. say, excuse me, is there something wrong with with my glasses because I can't <laughs> see out of my right eye? So is that, I... is that because you were really busy with your school workload? Is that what took you three weeks to go to Specsavers? Yeah. Oh, that's really sad to hear that, you know, because you had so much to do at school that you, you know, kind of put checking up on your health kind of on a back burner. Obviously, you didn't know the context. You didn't know that you had MS, but, you know, things like that make me sad. And it's a, it's, it's part of why I wanted to do a show like this, because I think it's really common for teachers to, you know, irrespective of, you know, medical conditions or not, a lot of people, a lot of teachers put, you know, their lives and their health on back, but on the back foot just so that, you know, they can put, prioritise their schoolwork and, you know, just all the things that they need to do for school. But that's really, really sad, Melissa. Um, and I wanted to ask, so what happened when you did eventually go to Specsavers? Well, I met the most amazing optometrist and he said to me, Melissa, I'm going to test your eyes. I was there for about three hours. He was testing and testing and testing. And... Um, Eventually, he just said, look, Melissa, I'm so sorry. He wrote me a letter and he said, I'm going to ask you to go to Moorfields Eye Hospital because I can do nothing for you. You need to speak to super specialists who will be able to assist you further. He knew, he knew because the way he would look at me, the way I meant not he would, the way he did look at me, he knew there was something wrong. He probably knew I had optical neuritis, but he couldn't say it to me being the optometrist for Specsavers. He doesn't want Specsavers to be sued, but he knew. Yeah. So eventually, again, once again, schoolwork prevailed. Two weeks later, I eventually got to, I'm laughing about it, but it's not funny. I got to Moorfields Eye Hospital. Maybe it was just less than two weeks. And I met an amazing doctor, consultant doctor, Dr. Gordon Plant. Right. And he said to me, Melissa, um, he, he, he said, Miss, I'm gonna get, um, people are going to be asking you lots of questions. So go through the, the rigmarole of answering all the questions and I'm going to test you as well. About two to three hours of testing, again, at Morfield's Hospital, I found out that I'm colourblind. Right. I, can't, I cannot see certain colours like green. I cannot see the leaves on a tree. I just see green, but I don't see the leaves, the green leaves right. on a tree. And, and did you find this out in that same kind of checkup on your eyes? Yeah. Or something you found out afterwards? I found out on the, um, during the checkup on my eyes at Moorfields Eye Hospital. Right. Um, I mean, I can really relate to that. So I've met Melissa in person because we worked at the same school. Well, we work at the same school currently. And um, I had a really, really similar story. I was at school one day. I was actually in my PGC year. I was training at school. I kind of mentioned this um, in part two weeks ago. And my eye just felt funny one day. And I went to I also went to Specsavers, which is really weird because most people actually only get diagnosed in a hospital or, um, you know, most people who get diagnosed with MS are like fighting for years to have like their symptoms and stuff checked out. And, you know, it takes a long time to get the diagnosis. Whereas with me, just really weirdly, it's really similar. Like it's got a lot of parallels with Melissa's story. I went from school, I actually drove to Specsavers. 
um, when I got there, they looked into my eye and um, I think they did tell me that I had optic neuritis, so I'm not sure. And I remember I was given a letter that said eye hospital and I also went to Moorfield, um, but I did it on the same day. And I think, I guess a lot of that would have been because I was a PGC student, I didn't have the heavy workload that, you know, Melissa probably would have had at that time and a lot of other teachers are diagnosed with MS. But I just find it so crazy how many parallels there are. So um, I wanted to ask you, Melissa, what did you then do with that information? Did you did you go home? Were you hospitalised? What happened? Um, I was not hospitalised. I took a series of internal tests at Moorfields Eye Hospital and Dr Gordon Plant, he's, he's retired now, um, he and his staff of doctors gave me some drugs, heavy-duty steroids, and he said, Melissa, I know you, you're watching your weight, so I'll just say, watch what you eat. But in a week, you should have your sight back. And right. I was just like, thank God for that. So I took I took the bag of steroids that he gave me. It was only a week, week's worth of steroids. And I had to take one a day. And they were the fattest pills I've ever, I had ever seen at that time. And... Um, I heeded what he said to me, watch what I'm eating so I don't, you know, clamber up the weight scales. I didn't have to see anybody else at the time, but he did say, you will have to see doctors, but not today because we have to make you an appointment. Right. Because I needed to have the MRI scan. They cannot tell you that you have MS until they can verify that you have multiple sclerosis. Yeah. I needed to have the MRI scan. So he had um, taken down all the details and contacted my, he was going to contact my GP and also set me an appointment at the National Hospital, which are still currently my hospital. I absolutely love them. They've been so good to me. And um, I didn't have to see anybody else that day, but I had to take my medication home with me. Right. And I took my medication home with me, and I, I love drinking water, so that was no problem. So, And I took my medication, first pill, the first day, second pill, second day, third pill, third day. I woke up and I could actually see. Wow. It was so a bit hazy. Wow. Yeah, but the next day I could actually see, see, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh, brilliant. I can see. You don't realise the value of your sight until a moment like that happens. Yeah, no, I can I can totally totally relate to that and I know I know the feeling so well and you know did you find it weird when the doctors kind of reassured you that there's a possibility your sight will come back you know that it's just a bit of a flare-up and you'll recover because when I couldn't see out of my right eye the first time I had it I feel like the people around me were a lot more panicked than I was. I just kind of really believed when they said that my sight will recover. And then it did. And it's like you just have this newfound appreciation for everything that you can see. But a lot of people around you end up kind of struggling with, you know, the fact that you kind of went blind and then recovered, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. The issue for me, though, um, I, my, I lost my sight at an older age and I was already living on my own. So, right. yeah, so it was something a little bit different. I already was living on my own. I'd met my, my, a man who was my partner, and I knew he was going to be my husband that very year. Right. Yeah, so, you know, I felt comfort, comforted by him because he was happy that the woman who was soon to be his wife would be able to see. 
because he was just perhaps I'll kept thinking perhaps he's thinking I'm marrying a blind lady I'm just thinking oh dear he's not going to marry me at all but he was fine he was really confident I mean he really appreciates science and respects the scientific world but I wasn't confident I mean, I mean you lost your vision Melissa I, w- I would like to hope that if even if you had been like permanently blind that it wouldn't have had you know too big an effect on um your relationship with your partner but um if I just fast forward to when you were diagnosed officially with MS, yeah. what I'd like to ask you, because um, I know just have not just for MS, but a lot of teachers, just knowing a lot of teachers that have medical conditions and having been a union rep before, I want to ask, um, how did you feel about sharing that information with the school that you were at? Did you tell them or did you choose to withhold that information? I told and, them nothing. Um, and why? So, so, so you, you never shared it. And so could I ask why that's the case? I was a new teacher. I was a new teacher who wanted to be accepted. So the word, the key word, and only word I have is acceptance. When you're a brand new teacher and you're finding your feet and you want people to find their feet with you, I felt the only thing I could do is be accepted to the point where I only told people I had MS two years ago. Wow. Wow. And, and so, and how long have you had? So 2012, was it when you were diagnosed? Yeah. So for 10 years. So you didn't tell anybody for eight years? I didn't tell anyone at all. Wow. And I completely see what you're saying about acceptance um, and being a new teacher. But, you know, I just kind of want to ask, what are your thoughts on that? Why do you feel like in order to be accepted, you needed to hide that you had a condition like MS? <sighs> Oh, I, I know it's very deep yeah I don't know that I have words to to tell you that I mean it's not like being accepted when you're at school you know when you're at school and you're thinking oh is that person going to be my friend maybe I have to walk to school like this or maybe I should bring them my pocket money no it's not it's not like that at all it was more a case of am I going to be looked upon as somebody who can't do anything simply because I have MS I doubted myself because how could I be a teacher, the teacher I want to be, if I have a disability? Oh, I'm really sorry to hear that, Melissa. And actually, I feel like what you're saying is really common amongst teachers. And I really hate to say it, but I think it's because um, there's both, you know, widespread misconceptions around disabilities and conditions like MS. And also just because I think... um, I think a lot of the teaching profession is judgmental by nature. You know, it's like a profession where you get scrutinised for every last thing you do, whether it's progress scores and, you know, how your kids perform in exams or, you know, even in some schools, things as as extreme as do you stand up all the time when you're teaching and do you know what I mean? Or, you know, what time does somebody leave school? There are many schools that clock watch. So I just feel like... um, what you're saying is probably something that a lot of teachers with an illness or a disability of any kind, um, you know, can really relate to. And you you certainly wouldn't be alone in that. I think it's seen as really brave when somebody shares or discloses their medical condition. And I also feel like it shouldn't be like that. And teachers should be supported because it's really hard to, you know, um, have widespread or consistent support around the country for teachers with disabilities when a lot of the time teachers don't feel like they can you know share it and I just I just feel like that's really sad and I want to ask you um what changed your mind then what why have you started to share your MS diagnosis I think it's my children they see me all the time I mean 
things have progressed to the, I now have secondary progressive multiple sclerosis. Yeah. I did have remittent relapsing. But after having, it began, the problems began. Then I'm not blaming them as such. When I got pregnant, not with a child, but with children, I had twins. And I, I had optical neuritis again, and I couldn't yeah. see again. And I lost my mobility again. And I had to go back into physiotherapy again. And, and I just thought to myself, no, I can't live hiding I cannot live hiding it. And the physiotherapist even said it to me. She said, you, you shouldn't hide. You shouldn't hide because I refuse to take a walker. She said, you need the walker, Melissa. And I said, no, I can't use a walker because I'm not of the age of a walker. And she just looked at me like, have you lost your mind? It's there to help you. Oh. Said, yeah. And looking at the faces of my children, I just think, no, Melissa, you know, look after yourself so you can look after them. So I must inform whomever I'm dealing with of my situation because I don't want to kill myself in the process of trying to just be quote-unquote normal just because I'm trying to hide who I am, who is seen, perceived by some as abnormal, but that would be a wholly false Oh, Melissa, so 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 powerful and I think something that so many people with you know um, a medical condition in in general not just in the teaching profession can relate to so um, the next thing I kind of the next area I just kind of wanted to ask you about so in those eight years where you didn't tell anybody that you had MS and I guess was a lot easier to conceal because of the fact that at that point it would have a lot of your symptoms would have been invisible because you didn't have a walker. Um, I want to ask you, how did you find the teaching profession? Is there anything you found, you know, to really help you? Or is there anything you found that really hindered you? Like, how did you feel as a teacher with MS? Um, I think I've become, I became more aware as a teacher with MS. I was able to see the way teachers were teaching, or not teaching, treating, I should say, treating students. I came to understand that students are the backbone of our craft. If they're not, in, if they're not buying into what you're trying to deliver, then you're wasting your time. I recall teaching in Redbridge in a school, I'm not going to name the school, in a school that is pretty financially secure right teaching lots of students who would come to school hungry oh. super super hungry and it would irritate me because I'm thinking how can I teach a lesson if people are slobbing slow slouching on tables telling oh. you that they're they're tired they're tired and I did something extremely naughty what did you do I decided to start bringing in biscuits and little chocolate bars and packets of crisps to my lesson and I'll tell them to bring some water if they can if they can't they can go to the they can go and retrieve water because the school always had water availability but there was never the food availability that would be needed the things I was serving not the healthiest of things but the only things I could carry at the time and I was younger than I am now now I would have bought them some grapes some bananas you know some seriously <laughs> healthy things but <laughs> At the time, kids would come into my class and they would do their work because they knew Miss Masama was going to ensure 
that they were going to have something to eat whilst they were doing their work. Oh, that's so sad. So did you give the biscuits to all of the students or just the ones that told you they were hungry? Or was it the ones that you thought were hungry because they were slouched on tables, etc.? Um, I would buy enough to basically to feed all my classes of the day. I mean, I spent most of my, I spent a lot of money doing this. Wow. But it was worth it at the time to the point where I still see the students who are now grown men and grown women who all remember me. And I'm like, I, I remember flying out to Portugal. I think it was at Gatwick Airport. And I was stopped by somebody who said to me, I, I went to a food shop, I can't remember which one it was. And the person said to me, Miss Masama. And I thought to myself, huh? <laughs> I thought it was a police. I was like, I haven't stolen anything. I was going to buy something. It was Wagamama. That's what I said to them. I said to her, I was about to buy something. I haven't stolen anything. It wasn't at her airport either. It was actually a train station. I'm just remembering because I was at Wagamama to get some food for the kids and for myself and my husband. Right. And um, I said to her, I haven't taken anything. I promise you. I was just about to buy this. She said, no, Miss Masama, you're my teacher. Oh. She said, yeah, and you used to always bring me, bring us some, some bits and pieces to eat in your lessons if we're hungry. And I'm like, oh, dear. Oh, that's so cute. But that that's the way the, of the, the world should be like that. We don't do enough often for our students, but that's because our hands are tied. Oh, honestly, Melissa, that's so cute. Like, So did you say that was in Portugal you saw one of your students? No, no, I was going to, I was thought, I'm thinking of a different time when I was going to Portugal. Oh, no, I was coming back from back. Gloucester. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. I came back from Gloucester. So, oh, yeah. that's so amazing. Like, I think honestly, like teachers, I feel like every teacher I've ever met, and I believe also all teachers everywhere are very well-meaning people who show up every day because they care so much about students in so many ways. And I just think it's so sad that you know. I mean, I thought it was quite funny at first when you explained that the school you described the school as financially secure. You know, I thought, where's the story going? But, you know, I just think it's so sad that more isn't done. Like, I feel like if I saw children that were hungry in my class, I think I'd be quite scared to feed them, even though I always do have biscuits and things like that on me because I just always snack on things, you know, in my breaks and lunch times. I'd be scared because, like, for example, when I worked in mainstream, you know, there was a lot to consider, like, you know, do children have allergies? Um, you know, I, before I buy sweets or chocolates or anything, like at the end of the year, for example, I would always just double check the register to make sure that no one had an allergy. Or if I was to give, you know, a child biscuits as a one off, I would be scared to, you know, that I'd get summoned to safeguarding and asked why, you know, I've fed a student. And I, I feel like there are, like, like, I feel like a lot of teachers would kind of understand that in some settings that I would basically be too scared to do anything about a student being hungry except report it to you know in the necessary channels in the school as we're taught to um, in safeguarding matters but I wouldn't want to do anything about it because I know a lot of teachers who've been in trouble before for kind of going above and beyond in that way. I hear you on that. In terms of safeguarding can I just say everything I ever bought nutless nothing is nuts because <laughs> yeah. you know I'm fully aware of the fact that people, children have allergies nothing with nuts and various other things nothing with coconuts um and yeah just buying things that are pretty rudimentary and giving people choices as well saying yeah. you know take what you want not oh. forcing it upon a child 
you know, that's just so sweet, Melissa. That's really, really nice. And I'm so glad that those children remember that and, you know, appreciate you for it. That's really cool. So did the school ever find out that you were doing that? And if they did, like, what happened? Um, I think they did. Yeah. Especially the one, the school that I was mentioning at the beginning of our discussion. Um, they did find out. I think they were perhaps quite happy that somebody was doing something. But for me, you know, I just, like I say, I really appreciate being a teacher. It's a privilege. It's not something that we are doing the, the students a duty. We are privileged to be able to assist you know, and if we can assist, let's assist properly. The school, perhaps they did find out, because I know the head teacher is not my biggest fan. The day I told her I'm resigning, she was pretty happy about that. Oh, but, that's so sad. No, no, that's good. I mean, you say it's sad, but for me, it was brilliant. I did not like her. In fact, she, had her, she, she her school, have a massive turnover of staff. Oh, that's really sad to hear. And do you think, Melissa, do you think that might have played a hand in why you didn't want to share your MS diagnosis when you were there? Um, I didn't feel, like I say, I didn't feel comfortable. I was so, the staff that were working at the school at the time, they were aware that I had MS. Yeah. And the PE teachers would often give me a lift home. They would oh. drive me to my home. And that's, also... That's cool one of the teachers who was a geography teacher and we continued to be friends after we left even PE teachers and the geography teacher we continued to be friends after I left and they even left thereafter they continued they you know they they used to look out for me look after me and um that was a massive privilege for me because I just thought to myself I'm not on my own because you know with MS I don't know about you Yasmin but sometimes you feel like you're on your own do you feel that no one quite gets it? Yeah, I, feel, I can definitely relate to that. I, I mean, Melissa, I'm so happy to hear that you had the support of certain teachers um, in, your, in the school that you were at at the time where you were feeding these children the biscuits. Um, I think I can definitely relate to feeling alone. I think for me, um, what I really struggled with uh, was, you know, I was diagnosed right at the end of my PGCE year. So I got like QTS, for anyone that doesn't know, it's qualified teacher status. And I got MS at like the same time, just a week apart. I got diagnosed with both things. No, no, I wasn't diagnosed with teaching. What am I saying? Um, I got my qualified teacher status and my MS diagnosis in the exact same week in July of 2018. And when I joined my school in September, I had already informed them because I was told, you know, MS is really serious. It can progress. It's stress related. And I honestly thought I was helping myself by telling my school um, in advance before I joined because I thought I'd give them time to, you know, refer me to occupational health, which they didn't do and loads of other stuff. And actually, um, it ended up being, you know, a, a really bad decision that I had informed them because, you know, I just it was a massively discriminatory experience. But um I think what I struggled with was, you know, my first day at INSET, it was technically my first day as like a teacher, as an NQT, but it was also my first day as somebody in the workforce with MS. And, you know, I remember how many people just around me just had no understanding of it. And, you know, I constantly felt like I'd have to explain things. Like, I remember I'm from the science faculty, I'm a science teacher, and you'd think, of all the faculties in the school, they'd be the most understanding. But I remember, you know, I would regularly be asked, is it contagious? You know, and, you know, I just kind of used to wind people up and be like, yeah, it is, you know, like, watch out. You're honestly, because I would think how 
can somebody think that a neurological autoimmune condition can be passed on like like a like a flu you know and I think for me that's where the loneliness came from having nobody I could relate to I didn't know any teachers with MS there's actually a forum I don't know if any of you guys have heard of it but it's called shift MS um, on the internet I used to read through it here and there. I had an account, I was called Fraction on there. And I just used to read um, the accounts of um, people with MS. But even then, there weren't really any that mentioned that they were teachers. And so I didn't really know anybody in the profession that um, had MS. And I think that's where the loneliness came from for me. I think I would have really appreciated being able to see positive stories of people with MS that, you know, have continued to thrive as teachers and, you know, have done well in their um, career and things like that. But I didn't see any of that. And I think that's what really motivated me to go public with um, my MS diagnosis. I can see that there's some people that have joined. Um, if there's anyone that wants to come up as a speaker, you're absolutely more than welcome to or if any of you have any questions for Melissa or for me you're more than welcome to so and Melissa the next thing I wanted to ask you is um how have you felt about um things like well-being week you know I know that's coming up this half term I've got a lot of thoughts on well-being week I'm I appreciate it but I'm also not the biggest fan and I just wanted to ask you have you ever felt like well-being week is something that really helps you or you really appreciate well-being what? Oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry, my I'm I'm so sorry, my gorgeous one. No, you know, well-being week, adding labels to everything, is just no, no. How about we just treat each other with respect from the outset? Why do we have to have a week to remember to treat each other well <laughs> and look after each other's well-being? You know, it, we should always be doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I, I totally agree. But so Wellbeing Week, what happens? Um, for anyone that doesn't know, it's a week where schools basically acknowledge that the, you know, the normal kind of routine for teachers is actually quite strenuous and stressful. And so they take some things away to kind of, you know, appreciate and acknowledge the teachers in that school. So like a really common thing to happen in Wellbeing Week might be, um, you know, meetings are cancelled, there's no meetings before or after school for that particular week, or lunchtime or, you know, whatever, whenever teachers might have had meetings. Um, and other schools do other things on top of that. So some of them book in sessions like things like massages or like group activities and some schools uh, serve things like a stuffed breakfast every day in that well-being week at some point in November from what I remember but um, I know that other schools do it at other points in the year as well so um, I just want to ask Melissa as a teacher with MS do you feel like um, what do you find the most strenuous about like a, a typical uh teaching week like is it the meetings is it the number of students in the class is it the timetable is it the marking like what do you feel like as a teacher with MS you find the most strenuous I think the most strenuous thing about teaching dealing with behavior behavioral problems in my classes that's the most strenuous thing for me and having to fill out the forms, safeguarding forms, and various other forms, and typing this in a computer, typing that in a computer, that I find the most strenuous. But ultimately, I don't really find anything strenuous. I do my marking in my lunch break to avoid having to stay around after school because I know I feel so fatigued by the end of the day. Um, I love teaching. It's not like I teach a full week. I only teach three days a week. And that's a blessing for me because I... 
but my body couldn't cope working full time. I don't know how you do it. I really don't know how you do it. No, honestly, I I completely hear you. Um, and you know, one thing, one symptom in MS that I feel like people really don't understand that I really want to talk about is um this. I mean, it's colloquially referred to as cog fog. So like cognitive fatigue, um, you know, mental fatigue. I just want to ask Melissa, is that something that you feel that you suffer from? And do you feel like, what do you feel like helps in teaching to kind of minimise that? Mm. Or could you explain what it is? What cog fog yeah, is? A brain fog, cog fog. I mean, cognitive fog. I mean, I, I, it does occur for me, but I try to not over think too much too much because sometimes I'll I won't I'll lose my voice my ability to say something because I've been trying to overthink it I'll forget something it's such something as simple as a name I will forget a name but I get over it by not stressing myself yeah and you know I I don't know how I don't even know if I have an adequate response to the question you've asked me Sorry for the waffle, but I just think that you know, cog fog, brain fog. We I just need to, like I say, take my time, take my time, because there's no shame in taking my time. I love because people. Sorry, carry on. I didn't no, mean no, I was just saying because it's not only people with MS that suffer with brain fog. Exactly, we all have it. Just take our time. Exactly. No, I completely agree. And Melissa, it's so nice to hear about, you know, your like self-compassion, your self-care towards yourself. I think generally a lot of people, especially teachers, are really, really hard on themselves. And it's so nice to hear that, you know, you're just you kind of reassure yourself and you're like, you know what, take your time. You're just very you sound like you're very accepting of, you know, that your body has limitations. And I also really like that you said that it's something that affects all te- well, all people. I completely agree with that. I think cognitive fatigue is something that everybody has to a certain extent. Um, obviously, there are different thresholds for, for how people can meet it. So, you know, some people might have it because they've got a, a medical condition which causes it directly. But also, you know, when a teacher has had a particularly busy week or period of time or, you know, is sleep deprived or has something really huge going on in their personal life, everyone can kind of at different points, you know, come into school with some form of brain fog and um, the thing I find the most difficult about brain fog is no one can see it so nobody really can know you know that you're you know that you've got this kind of fatigue on a mental level a lot of the time people because it doesn't show up on your physical appearance and I agree with you like Melissa if I start to I mean thankfully I don't really have any MS symptoms and I haven't had them for years but I think if there is one that I can still sometimes really relate to. It's the cognitive fatigue um, because after a full teaching day, like for example, last year, I had three full days in a week and all of my, well, almost all of my PPAs were on a Friday. So on a Friday, I used to finish teaching at 10 past 10 and I'd have the rest of the day free. And um, I mean, not really free, but I mean, it was free because, um, you know, that's when all my PPAs were. And I remember I would feel so drained on those full days, but then I would really look forward to the Friday because I just used to faff about, you know, wander around the school. And here and there, like, teachers would ask me, how come you don't do any work in your PPAs? And I would explain because they're right at the end of the week at my most tired point in the week. And so I don't really feel like I can concentrate now. So all I used to do my planning one day in the holiday. I would just leave one day at the start of every school holiday and plan for a whole half term and just make this, like... um 
Google Doc where I'd hyperlink all of the resources I'd be planning to use. And yeah, like here and there after school, I'd modify it or change it, you know, chop and change based on how things had been going that half term. But um, because I used to do that, I would never really do any work on a Friday. Like I've always really admired teachers that can mark in their PPAs. Personally, I feel completely incapable of that because I feel like if I've been teaching all day I just do not have the capacity to sit and concentrate on marking and I'd be far more inclined to make mistakes like the one time I did mark in my PPAs um, I had basically marked a lot of the papers wrong and did them again because I just couldn't figure out you know how how I'd marked them like that and I think it was because I had cognitive fatigue from you know teaching and I think I don't know the analogy maybe Melissa you know it better than me but I know there's a spoons analogy that people use a lot have you heard of it before? I have not. Oh, I so really <laughs> if there's anyone here that has, I mean, feel free to jump in. But I think it's something about how everyone's got like a certain number of spoons in a day. Um, and you know what? I'm going to do a terrible job explaining this. I feel like I understand it, but I'm not good at explaining what it is. And basically, as you go through the day, you the number of spoons you have kind of like decreases. And so you've kind you kind of reach your capacity and what you can cope with and so um I think the point of the analogy is you're just kind of meant to know how many spoons you have and therefore to not over kind of like pitch yourself on any given day or to just kind of work within your limits I think is the idea of that analogy but it's used a lot in chronic illness and stuff in teaching so I wanted to ask you next Melissa um and also please I would love to hear from anyone else in the audience that you know might have some things to say um I wanted to ask Melissa, what do you think is helpful? What What do you think, if you were now to design um, something to support a teacher with MS or to support a teacher with a chronic illness, um, what do you think they would need? Just based off of your own experiences, what do you think could really help a school support a teacher with a long-term illness? Um... I think it, what I, for me personally, I found the greatest support in my teaching career. I found in terms of designing things like creating resources. I, you know, talking about cog fog a moment ago, I had massive cog fog designing resources, and also the fatigue in sitting there creating powerpoints or any other sort of um, teaching material. I really struggled with that until I found out the joys of doing deep research on Google. Because you can find PowerPoints that have been pre-created by others. And I found lots of PowerPoints that already exist and I could just adjust them to suit my teaching, which, ha which reduced the stress on my brain. Um, I, would, I would have a, like a, a sheet, not too many pages, of advice for, for teachers and trainee teachers as to obtain resources, pre-made resources or part-made resources online. I mean, yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. I just think in general, teaching becomes so much easier when you're in a faculty or when you're in a school where the norm is to share resources and, you know, acknowledge how much of a strain that is on teachers' lives and, you know, their their time you know I've worked in two completely different schools in the first school I worked in as an NQT there were no shared resources like you would have to be seen 
to be making your own resources. And what I found particularly weird about it was there were so many of us in that faculty and um, they would basically create a spreadsheet where, so it's like this Excel document where um, they would put the week of the you know week beginning along the you know down the side of the excel sheet and then you would have like a lesson title there some like the head of your department would have written lesson titles and so you can see that you know um every everyone in the faculty would be teaching the same thing in the same week and so I would constantly be surrounded by teachers that were more experienced than me that obviously had resources from you know previous years that would be you know doing well seen to be doing so much less than me because I would have to make every lesson from scratch you know I would constantly be on tears trying to download resources but then it was at that time when the curriculum had changed so you know there was that time on tears where you could kind of download a lot of free resources and then I think it kind of when I joined teaching it I joined at the time when it had just switched to the new curriculum and so a lot of the resources or a lot more of the resources actually started to cost money and I'm not against that in the sense that if you know a teacher has taken the time to make their resources and then put them on Tez um, to sell them, I I don't think you know that's a bad thing really. But it just I was just always in a really difficult position. I'd be spending all my time after like a full day. I would be sitting there for for so long after school, just you know making resources, and you know the department would be watching. They'd want to see me doing that. So we eventually created this kind of you know underground network like we had this group chat I made it it was actually called counseling and and the reason why I called it counseling was because we were all just having such a difficult time and that group chat was like our therapy that was the joke and um, you know we'd share resources but we'd make sure that nobody knew and so if somebody sent me a, a resource that they'd already made I would change the font to something else or I changed the color of the slide so that it, it looked like I'd made my own one and even that took up a lot of you know a lot of my time and I just remember living with this like chronic stress and fear that somebody would know that I hadn't made a resource and then when I went to my next school after that it was the complete opposite experience it was considered good practice to share your resources or to ask somebody for a resource if you didn't have it it was like the friendliest and most collaborative department ever you know everyone in faculty meetings you could just casually say oh I've not taught you know p8 before I don't know what um, you know parallelogram of forces are uh, can someone help me and somebody would sit with you in their PPA and just kind of talk you through it and teach you how to do it and you know send you their lessons and you know there would be I remember there was um, a teacher that used to constantly go to like events and she followed everybody on edgy twitter and I remember once saying that I'd not taught this unit called p6 before which is like a physics unit and I remember she was like oh Adam Boxer's made amazing resources on that here you know let me send it to you and it was just just so helpful and kind and it really you know it really saved me a lot of time like I remember at my last school I'd never had any Sunday dread I never had any fear you know, I was never embarrassed about sharing resources. But when I first joined, I was like terrified. I'd look around at people, you know, saying, oh, can you send me that? Or somebody would show up to school and be like, you know what, I've not even planned for the day. And everyone would find it funny and just quickly, you know, sort them out, do some printing for them, give them loads of stuff. And, you know, like, I thought it was so amazing and it had a really positive effect on my well-being and really saved me a lot of time, which I think is the crucial thing for teachers. So like, Melissa, aside from like, and also anyone else, Gemma, Ms. Shaheen, anyone, you're welcome to jump in. Is there anything else that you would say is um, supportive of teachers with chronic illnesses that you would do? Oh, I really don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think. 
I mean, ultimately, I've always supported myself. For instance, I don't go to the canteen all the time to eat because, I'd, like I said, I'd rather do my marking in my classroom, in my lunch break, because I want to go home on time. I don't want to... What would be support, supportive is not asking teachers with health problems to stay after school for a long yeah. period of time. Yeah. Because it's so tiring. What I would rather do is, you know, give me that ability to do my marking in my lunch break. Don't ask me to do duties such as walking around the walking around the playground or standing beside the stairs. Because I could instead of standing beside the stairs, ask somebody else who's more able bodied to stand to do it and let me go and do my marking. But that makes me sound so privileged. No, <laughs> it really, I don't think it does. I think I very I relate so much to what you're saying. And I completely agree that schools, I think if you've got a teacher that's coming in with a chronic illness, I don't think it's really hard to, um, you know, as a school or as um, a chain of line management to think, you know, what could I do to kind of alleviate the the stress that person might be feeling? Or what could I do to support them? I think for me, the very obvious thing to do would be to, you know, ask that person and to never assume that you know what would be, you know, really helpful for them. I think always ask, but, you know, just off the back of what you were saying, Melissa, um, about duties, n- not being expected to do duty. When I was an NQT, I remember, like, I my MS was quite bad that year. I was newly diagnosed. I used to get a lot of pins and needles in my feet. I'd feel a bit off kilter, like I couldn't balance properly. I don't have any of that now, but... Um, at the time I did and I remember funnily enough it was actually well-being week when I asked to be taken off break duty and the assistant head um, basically turned around and said well if you're unfit to do break duty the next question is are you unfit to teach and like I've never forgotten that like I've never forgotten it because you know I was so offended and I did actually go report it to the head teacher I mean it didn't get anywhere anyway I didn't get an apology or anything but you know it was it, it was something that really affected me and when I went to my second school, I had an occupational health referral before I even joined. And, um, you know, when I was asked over the phone, what do I think, um, when I was asked by the occupational health doctor, what I would find supportive, it was one of the, it was the first thing I mentioned because I'd had such a bad experience at my previous school with duties. So I asked if, um, I said, basically, I get pins and needles in my feet and I find it really tiring to stand and do duties. And I would rather just have that 20 minutes to myself to be able to have a snack or whatever I need to do to kind of rest before my next lessons. And I will never forget when I when my occupational health referral came out, the associate head teacher basically said to me, oh, that's really, you know, really straightforward. And it was implemented straight away. Like she called it straightforward. And it was implemented. And actually, because by that point, I was totally fine. I actually did do duties. So last year, for example, at my school, I had a break duty that I did every single week. And I felt totally fine. I actually really used to look forward to it because I really got along with the kids. I used to just stand by a gate with another teacher that was a good friend of mine. And I used to love doing my duties. So I actually was asked to be put back on the rotor so I could just do a break duty. Um, but so, you know, I'm glad now that I have better experiences. But, you know, Melissa, I don't think that you sound privileged. And that's the thing. I think what happened in my first school and what is actually quite common in teaching is a lot of people seem to think that if somebody has asked um, to be alleviated or something like duties, a lot of people seem to be under the impression that it's somebody just trying to get out of, you know, um, 
or some just trying to have an easier ride in school. But actually, if you look at what the Equality Act says, you know, a disability is considered any condition that somebody's likely to have for 12 months or longer. And the law literally requires you to treat people with a disability more favorably. That's literally what it says. And the reason for that is because when somebody has a chronic illness, they're at a greater disadvantage. But for whatever reason in teaching, and I, and I would say it's probably the same across professions, a lot of the people, because they can't see that disadvantage, see you as, you know, um, asking to not have to do things or to, you know, be removed from there or those kind of things. They see it as you getting an easier time in a school or in a workplace when you're not because they just can't see the disadvantage if that makes sense um i can see that Gemma and Mr. Shaheen have come up but just before um just before that i just wanted to quickly share um the with a slack group This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Saturday the 29th of October saw a so-called March of the Mummies, according to an ITV news report. Hundreds of people campaigning for improvements in childcare and working conditions for parents took part in marches in Manchester and 11 other cities. The march was organised by campaign group Pregnant Then Screwed, who say that the UK has some of the world's most expensive childcare. The group believes that children in the UK are being born into poverty because parental leave is not well paid enough and a lack of flexible working conditions is forcing parents out of the workforce. A spokesperson for the campaign group said research suggests that employers are desperately trying to find highly skilled people to work, whilst hundreds of thousands of women who desperately want to work can't. In response, a government spokesperson said, the government is committed to supporting working parents and helping them participate and progress in their working life. The UK has one of the most generous maternity leave entitlements in the world. They went on to highlight the recent consultation on making the right to request flexible working a day one right for all. More than £7.5 million has been announced for the extension of mental health programmes for schools in Northern Ireland. Education Minister Michelle McIlveen announced funding continuation for the Engage 3 and Healthy Happy Minds projects. 
Ms McIlveen said that the feedback from school leaders and staff was that both programmes had been invaluable in helping to support pupils across all educational settings. Both schemes were created to help alleviate the impact of the pandemic on children and young people. Durham University students have queued on the streets overnight to secure a home for next year, according to a report from the BBC. Lists were released and hundreds lined up outside of estate agents in the city, with one student saying some showed up at his current accommodation for a viewing in a panic for next year. The university said it had anticipated pressure on the private rental market and increases in rent and was giving the issue urgent attention. Durham Students' Union described the city's housing market as broken and claimed that increasing student numbers were putting both welfare and education at risk. First year undergraduates in the city have guaranteed accommodation but have to find their own housing after that. The university is encouraging students to contact their college if they are facing difficulties. TES magazine features a story from Scotland as a teaching watchdog raises child protection concerns with the government. The General Teaching Council for Scotland says its role protecting children is being adversely affected by police failing to share information. A judge ruled last year that critical evidence should be shared by police. But the GTC for Scotland says the change has been slow to take effect. New figures also show that the GTCS fitness to teach process has also been hit by the pandemic with the average time taken to close a case increasing to 249 days during 2021-22 compared to 113 days the previous year. The GTCS is responsible for investigating and making decisions about Scottish teachers fitness to teach and says it relies on agencies sharing information and making referrals. Police Scotland's Assistant Chief Constable responded by saying that child protection is a priority and no child will be put at risk of harm. The GTCS has recently come into criticism for its handling of child protection cases. The full article is available via TES magazine. Professor Alison Beverstock has been awarded with special recognition at the Soldiering On Awards 2022 held in London recently. Professor Baverstock is the founder and director of the charity Reading Force, which promotes shared reading within Force's families. The UK's 130,000 Force's children typically face ongoing challenges such as disrupted education, uncertainty and parental absences. The Reading Force project was designed to promote family connectivity through books, as well as raise higher education aspirations, engagement and transition. The Soldiering On Awards recognise the achievements of those serving in the armed forces as well as those who support them. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about buying a laptop, a question I get asked all the time. So this is what you need to know if you're considering buying a laptop for yourself or a loved one. First up, it's physical shopping versus online shopping. My only advice on this is consider how much you're saving online. If a device goes wrong and you bought it from a shop, you can take it back. Online support will usually require you having to post the device back, which can be a bit messy. Even if you buy online, it's always good to visit a shop and actually see the device. I use these few tests to help me decide on a laptop. First, what is it for? If it's for gaming, then you need to look if it will run the games you want to play. All gaming machines will tell you how they perform with popular games. Pick your game and then it will just be a balancing act on how much you're willing to pay. More expensive usually equals better gameplay. Screen size is my next decision. 
If I'm going to be taking it places, then a smaller screen will make it easier to fit in a bag. If you're using it a lot, you might want a bigger screen. Next, I tried the G test. This is incredibly technical. It involves pressing the G on the keyboard and seeing how much the keyboard flexes. This is a good indicator of build quality. More robust designs will flex less. Sometimes this is a factor I use to decide between two models that are equally powered. If you're a bit of a DIY computer geek, then see if you can upgrade the hard drive and the RAM, etc. Some top-end gaming machines of a cheaper model and bar a small amount of graphics speed simply have more RAM and a bigger hard disk. Next up is the operating system and the life of the device. Pretty much every device will have a point in time where it's not supported anymore and will Stop upgrading. It won't stop working, but you'll no longer be able to keep up to date. Sometimes a device with a shorter upgrade life will look appealing because it's cheaper. However, in the long run, it won't last as long. Will a reconditioned computer suit you better? A second-hand or reconditioned machine will usually be considerably less. After all the other checks, have a look at the keyboard. The spacebar, if not replaced, will give a good indicator of the amount of use the machine has had. With new or old, feel how hot it gets. Some laptops run hotter than others. This could be uncomfortable if it's on your knee. Look where the power socket is. Will it be an obstruction in your favorite chair if it's leaned on regularly it can be broken finally don't be dazzled by flashy lights and gimmicks at first you notice them they'll soon be a part of the furniture there's no such thing as a bad machine nowadays there are lots of machines purchased though which are not fit for purpose as always feel free to send your thoughts to at tt radio 2022 i'm steve woods and that was two minute tech two minute tech with steve woods your tech briefing on teachers talk radio Hi, Gemma and Ms. Shaheen. Just wanted to say hi to you guys. Hi, Yasmin. Hi, everyone. Hi, Gemma. Is there anything that you wanted to add um, or any question you might have had? Um, yeah, so, I mean, Yasmin knows this. I, I have MS. Um, uh, sorry, my name's Gemma. I'm a science teacher in North London. I currently teach in alternative provision. I'm a head of science in alternative provision. Um, I'm quite early in my MS journey so I was only diagnosed with relapsing remitting MS last year last October um, after I had um, my first known clinical symptoms in May last year um, and there's kind of a number of things that Melissa said and Yasmin said that have kind of spoken to me um, so one of those is when Melissa was talking about having optic neurosis so I've not had that before um, my first signs were my legs went numb and it kind of steadily went up my legs to my waist um was kind of the confusion and shock of it and the kind of because there's no immediate diagnosis because you've got to wait for your MRIs to go through some people have to wait for a lumbar puncture as well um there was kind of a bit of a I don't know how to say it um like limbo period where I'd taken a day off so I'd when my legs initially went numb it took me a few days to realize what was going on I'd taken a day off work to go to the GP who had sent me straight to A&E so kind of escalated quite quickly with A&E sent me back to my GP for blood tests um and then I was like okay well what do I do next um do I go to work am I well enough to go to work um and there's kind of no really no real support in that period for people to know what to do um so I kind of just wanted to say that first but then the other thing I wanted to say was about um the question of what schools can do um I so I've been through, I've not been through an occupational health referral, I've not needed to yet, um, but I've been through school-based risk assessments, both health and stress risk assessments to try and make adjustments for my MS. And I think I always find it really hard to know how to answer that question. What what do you think needs to be done? What adjustments do you think need to be made? Um, because sometimes it's not very obvious. Um, so to give you an example, when my, my old school, I don't work for anymore, did 
um, did the risk assessments. There was a, there was a gen. I think there was a genuine want to do things for me and to make the correct adjustments. Um, but went through the, went through the questions in both the health and the stress risk assessment. A lot of the answers ended up being, well, it's the nature of the job. Yeah. Um, and I think we talk about this about young people and children, where we say, like a class, a large amount of supporting children with send is creating a classroom that is inclusive of everybody and that things that you do to adjust for send needs will be equally of benefit to other children in the class but we don't seem to make the same argument around adults in the school um and actually a lot of the things that I have needed in school would have been adjustments that would have benefited everyone in the school if that makes sense absolutely Um, so they kind of talk they talked about in the stress risk assessment okay well it's the nature of the job it's the nature of the job I was like well is it really the nature of the job should it be the nature of the job but it wasn't about individual adjustments that could be made for me um actually what needed to happen was adjustments across the whole school that could have benefited everybody um and I think that's that for me is the thing I find very difficult and I think that comes down to the thing that people are saying about not wanting to see be seen as um kind of being wanting to fit in and wanting to not be seen as difficult or awkward or out of um, out of the ordinary there's no reason why people if you create the right environment there's no reason why people with chronic illnesses and disabilities need to be very obviously seen to be catered for in a different way um the vast majority of the time and especially when it comes to conditions where there's invisible um uh, invisible disabilities um and so give an example at my old school um they had kind of lineups with students uh, at the start and end of every lesson or the start of the next lesson um and teachers kind of walking up and down the stairs 20 times a day to go and pick up the 20 is an exaggeration you know what i mean five yeah. six times a day to go and get their students yeah. um and i was like i'm struggling with this sometimes not all the time but sometimes i'm struggling with this um but because the school was not run in a way where that accommodation could be made for me without it becoming a problem for other people it made it very difficult for me to be able to speak up and say I'd rather not do this today um so in the end I did have um what I got the school to do kind of a conditional risk assessment so because I I didn't want to limit my my mobility before the MF limits it for me if that makes sense if it ever does Um, so it's like I they were like well how about we take you off duties and take you off things that require you to walk around school I was like well actually I'd rather not do that all the time because I do I can still walk and I'd rather walk while I can um but there would be some days where I need to be able to say I'm too tired today but if you have a school where there's not that if the school is run in a ineffective way or um there's not enough redundancy in the system to allow those um variations to happen on a day-to-day basis then it will put pressure on other people then and that then puts you in a position where you don't really want to say you can't do it because you know it's going to affect somebody else in the school Gemma I absolutely hear what you're saying I think every single thing you've just said there is something that I heavily relate to and I completely agree with you on and you know just going back to your point of it being really difficult to answer you know what can schools do to support teachers with you you know long-term long-term conditions or in mine yours and Melissa's case MS um, I think you hit the nail on the head there when you said it's hard to be able to answer that because it essentially changes all the time and you know the example that you just used of you sometimes feeling too tired to be able to walk around the school but wanting to still be able to do it and definitely not wanting to be in a position to kind of um you know inconvenience anyone else I just think um 
I mean, my experience in my first school, it was a massive school. You know, they had a lot of money. Um, they had a lot of staff. You know, there was no reason why I couldn't have been covered for break duty. But I think it is the case a lot of the time in schools that you have to, especially when you've just joined as an NQT or you're just a classroom teacher, um, you know, you've got this massive chain of line management and you have to rely on people actually understanding your condition or not having, you know, a view where they just think that you have to, kind of be a particular way to survive at a school you know every school has a culture and I think you'll hear a lot you know we don't do this here or we do that here or you know this is the way that we do things and I don't mean just for illnesses but you know every school just kind of has an in-group and you know there are certain conditions or requirements you have to meet to be part of that in-group and so a lot of the teachers that are outcasted or you know frowned upon are people who sadly often have protected characteristics who for whatever reason might need you know, to be made exempt from certain things. I think for me, um, you know, when I was working at my school and there was, you know, a head of faculty and a, an assistant head and a deputy head, all that, all of whom gave me a really hard time. When I did eventually go to a tribunal with them, it became apparent in the questions that, you know, the the questions that were put to them, it became really apparent that they actually just never had training on how to manage somebody with MS. And I think if that's the case in, you know, such a big school with a lot of money, you know, and such a high performing school, then it probably is the case everywhere that a lot of teachers or a lot of staff who are in positions of line management have never been given adequate training on how to support staff with chronic illnesses. And I feel like that's one of the biggest issues. It's awful to have to rely on somebody to kind of understand you or understand your condition. And a lot of the time what people see as supportive isn't supportive. And so what I just think would be really helpful is if teachers... Um, were with illnesses were referred to occupational health as a first point of call I think that doesn't happen a lot I think you were saying Gemma you haven't been to occupational health Melissa I don't know if you've ever been to um, occupational health but you know having done it twice at two different schools one at the end of my employment and one at the start of my employment I found it really helpful because it kind of also takes the pressure off you to kind of demand or to have to advocate for yourself in the sense that when you have to yourself as a member of staff say, oh, this is what I'd find supportive or that's what I'd like. It's it's tough to do that, you know. Um, but if you go to occupational health, that's someone who's a specialist that you just kind of either meet in person or now because of COVID often just speak to on the phone and they can help draft up, you know, what they think will support you in the workplace. And when that report gets sent to your employer, it's a lot easier to just for them to just kind of implement that and for you to kind of have that taken you know, have that pressure taken off you. I don't know any of you, um, Melissa, Gemma, or even Mr. Heen, if any of you have had an occupational health referral before and how you found that. Hi, uh, Yasmin. Hi, Gemma. Hi, Melissa. Hi. Um, first of all, Yasmin, I'd like to apologise because I didn't know this space was going on and I know I, I did say I would like to come on and um, share my experience. Oh, so, um, hello to you all. Oh, it's um, nice to have you here. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Yasmin. <laughs> it's good to be here. Um, so I'm um, Ms. Shaheen. I teach year four. I've been teaching for about seven years now. And um, two years ago, I was diagnosed with trigeminal neuralgia, which has some um, similar symptoms to MS. Um, but it causes like very sharp pain in the head. And sometimes it feels like an electric shock, etc. Um 
and because of that I had to like Gemma was saying I went through lots of you know a whole period of where I didn't know what was going on I was on different medication um lots and lots of MRI scans and they just couldn't find out what the matter was uh, then I started taking med medicine um and that medicine made me feel really quite fatigued and um you know like you're speaking about the brain fog um and at some points I felt like I couldn't teach and I didn't know whether I should go back to work and if I did go back to work I don't know what support was available when I did eventually go back to work um like um you said Yasmin it's really really important to get an occupational health referral so I would recommend that to anybody when I went back um I I spoke to the senior leadership team and 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 I did actually request an occupational health referral because um like quite a few of you mentioned it's really quite difficult to explain your invisible symptoms to people um who don't know what you're experiencing so i'd say things like um you know i i, I can't focus on reading a book um sometimes my trigeminal neuralgia is triggered by strong wind and they'd be like wind are you sure and it's really quite difficult to explain how you're feeling to people who have not experienced it or who don't live with chronic pain and then it's even more difficult to try and explain to them um what you're feeling when you're taking this medicine that's helping you to relieve some of the pain but is also suppressing other things um but when i did get my occupational health referral they did say things like um you know i, I i'm allowed to have um more break duties and um i am at risk of future sickness absence because that was one thing that was putting me down you know coming to school and then you know after a couple of days i wasn't well again and then i'd be off for a long time and that whole kind of um, uncertainty really did affect my mental health um but I think the advice that I'd give everybody is number one, yep, yeah, definitely get an occupational health referral because they are there to support you. And the second thing I would definitely say is sometimes as teachers, we do feel guilty about asking for support. But it's really, really important that we verbalise exactly what it is we need. So if we can't do that break duty, it's important to say, today I'm not very well. I won't be able to do the break duty because we do have rights. And sometimes I feel like we forget that. And at the expense of trying to please everybody else, we do put more pressure on ourselves and it doesn't help our health. Sometimes where you have got a really long meeting, it's okay to say, you know, I won't be able to stay for all of it or I, I won't be able to meet this deadline because one of my triggers is staring at a computer screen for too long. It's really important that we, we make those triggers clear. We make it clear to people. So it Although they probably um, will have some difficulty understanding that there's lots of different triggers you're learning new things about your um disability and um they just need to be sort of present and willing to listen yeah no honestly thank you so much for sharing that and honestly, that's okay I, I completely agree with everything you're saying like absolutely everything now what i want to ask um and any three of you are welcome to answer this should the responsibility always fall on the teacher with the condition so like in the case of Gemma, for example Gemma's not been diagnosed for you know that long and a lot of the time you know as you just said Shaheen, it's a learning experience for somebody that's just been diagnosed with a condition like should it always fall on the teacher themselves or the staff member to have to advocate for themselves and to say you look this is how I feel today or, or this is how I feel at present and I wouldn't be able to do xyz like is that something it, what could, what do you guys think could be done to kind of alleviate that responsibility from teachers who are already kind of juggling having 
you know a long-term condition and working what what do you guys think there's anything that could be done to kind of you know exempt a teacher from having to constantly speak for themselves on the matter I mean feel free to uh, jump into that at any point I'll go on Melissa Oh, I think. Oh, go on, go on. I'm there. I'm there. I'm there. I'm there. Okay. Give me one moment. Sure. I'm a bit of a. I mean, I turned forty a couple of years ago. I'm going to be forty-two this year. In approaching my fortieth birthday, I became a person who would say, "I'm not taking anything. I don't like. If I don't like it, I'm going to fix it." Changing my job, coming to where we where we both currently work. I spoke to the agency that employed me to work with the school we're working for and yeah. I said to them there are no resources in this school I need resources and I not as a permanent member of staff should not be the person to foot the bill for the resources the school has to foot the bill and I requested that resources would be obtained for me from the head teacher who was a bit lax in her response oh yeah we'll get the we'll get the resources it might take a few weeks a few months you have to go through this and go through that, fill this form out, fill, fill that form out, all of the things that would just send me to sleep. And I just thought to myself, no. So I spoke with the agency and said, look, this is the situation. I have MS and you're fully aware of it. I've worked for you as an agency for years and you know my craft because I've never, ever had a school say they don't want me, they don't like me. In fact, they're always asking for me back. And I said, I need resources. He said, Melissa, whatever resources you need, I'll get them for you. Oh. I obtained the resources on TES. Yep. And he paid me substantially <laughs> for my efforts. I tweaked the resources and I'm using them now. And I, I needed some further resources for Key Stage 3. And he said, I'll give you some more money. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so, so glad to hear that. Um, yeah. that you know um, because I agree I mean we were talking about this earlier but resources is definitely you know a really big thing that takes up a lot of time for teachers so a question I have for both of you Gemma and Melissa if you were to go to a new school now or you know say maybe a year from now um, yeah. would you declare MS on your application form or is it something that you would uh, refrain from doing so and because there are loads of teachers who re refrain from sharing it do you do you the both of you have any thoughts as to why that's the case? I don't mind coming in on that. Sure, go ahead. Um, so, I mean, I'm in I'm in a position of having recently changed schools. So, I changed schools this September. Yeah. Um, and I mean, most application forms have a place where you can tick whether you have a disability, but they don't really necessarily have places for you to elaborate. Um, so, I did. I, I would always now tick that I have a disability, um, but I. Um, in this situation told the person who was going to be my line manager after I'd been appointed to the role um, I don't think I would necessarily I'm not against saying to them beforehand um, it just was the right place for it to come up um, and I didn't feel like I was going to have an issue um, um, but that's kind of how I did it this time G kind of going back a little bit to your, your last question as well if I can yeah. um, I think um, I'm quite I mean I'm I've been in teaching nine years now. I've spent a bit of time out of teaching where I thought I was never going to go back. And I'm quite good now, quite self-confident saying, no, I don't agree with this or I want it to be like this. I'm, I'm not somebody who keeps my mouth shut in that way. Um, 
but um one of the things that really helped me was have when I was diagnosed was having a head of department who just created a culture where she would check in on people um and just be like how are you doing this week what's going on not just with people that she knew may have a particular issue but with everyone in the department and I think it goes back to the thing I was saying earlier that I think a lot of the things that need to be done for teachers with long-term conditions or other members of staff in school actually for that matter with long-term conditions is not necessary always about their particular adjustments there will be some where that's very specifically the case so your risk assessment says that you're not going to do a break duty or whatever um but a lot of the thing a lot of the things that really could help people would be about the culture of the school so rather than looking at it as an individual issue for that one person what is the culture of the organization um what things what things are teachers required to do in our organization what's the director time budget look like do you even write one and publish one um and what what is it what is it worth them doing how much slack have they got in their time for them to be able to make their adjustments that they need to make i think we need to look at things as a whole school perspective rather than just necessarily each as well as each individual teacher what do they need Absolutely, Gemma. That is such a lovely point. I completely agree with you that, you know, um, adjustments or, you know, what you could do to support a teacher shouldn't just ever be an individual issue. It should be embedded in the school culture. You know, schools should be inclusive places, as you mentioned quite rightly earlier, Gemma, that, you know, we do so much to make schools inclusive for students with loads of different needs. But, you know, why isn't that kind of extended to staff? And I always think that as well, Gemma, like, you know, in my first school where I had a really bad time I remember how much I would like be internally rolling my eyes that you know their anti-bullying policies for students when I felt like the biggest bullies in the school were actually the staff and you know it's just really sad that um, a lot of people feel the need to have to hide their condition or feel like they're a bit of a burden on their school at times because um, of the fact that you know they they might not get the adjustments that they need or you know they're made to feel as an individual like it's just kind of all on them and I would really like to remind people that you know the Equality Act of 2010 exists and it puts all of us you know irrespective of our, of our employers or where we are in you know a school hierarchy it puts everybody on a level playing field in the sense that if you are somebody that has a chronic illness you have to remember that the law protects you even if your managers are not people that are you know, making the effort to protect you. Remember that the law of the land literally protects you from, you know, dis discrimination. And it, you know, it's something that supports your protected characteristic and your disability. And that's something so important to remember and should empower people to know, actually, if you are wronged, there are necessary channels you can go down to kind of, you know, kind of essentially be compensated for you know anything that you've experienced that you shouldn't have and you know I, I think it's really important for staff with illnesses or well, for, with long-term conditions or disabilities to learn about their rights because it can go a long way in helping you and I just think that schools have a really really long way to go in that respect because so many people actually know nothing about the conditions that the people they lie manage suffer from and Gemma you know going back to your point about a school culture I think one of the things that I loved the most about my previous school was that it was actually a deaf provision in Newham so it was a school called Lister in um, Newham and it was the uh, deaf provision for all of those children in the borough that 
either had a hearing aid or you know some form of hearing difficulty and we had a deaf support department and from when I first joined I remember my first day there I saw a student that was in a wheelchair the school is you know really accessible he was just you know out and about in the playground um, it was so easy for him to get around school in his wheelchair um, you know there, there are deaf students that are in lessons you know just in the normal mainstream lessons I found it to be so inclusive and I remember how comfortable I always felt, you know, talking about having a condition and um, the school business manager was somebody that I felt like really supported me. And, you know, I just remember being so amazed that there were, especially because the last school I was at was the nearest school to the school I was at before that, which was like the complete opposite experience. And I just remember how happy I felt, you know, it, like it really restored my faith in myself and like my self-belief and my hope that I could actually survive as a teacher and you know like I just feel like it's really important for teachers to be in an environment where they're supported and where you know they can openly discuss these things I just think it's unacceptable to have to rely on um, you know line management to understand your condition because when they don't that things can go really badly and have you know detrimental effects on that teacher with a chronic illness so um I guess the next question, and I mean, if there's anyone, Shukri, I can see that you're here as well. So um, Shukri was a, a speaker two weeks ago on, on this show. Um, she's actually currently a, a school's direct trainee, and she's uh, the first teacher in her school that's in a wheelchair. Shukri, it's so nice um, to see you here. I'm going to invite you to speak if there's any more that you'd like to share today. I was so inspired by your story last time and learned a lot from you. So feel free to come up to speak if you'd like. Um, I think the next question that I have is um, if there was anything you were to say to your if you wanted to speak to your colleagues or your school rather and kind of influence its culture what do you think as somebody with an illness or someone with a disability what do you think all people all members of staff need to hear about conditions I know that's like a difficult question. If there's anyone, Gemma, Melissa, even Shukri, if anyone wants to jump in and listen, I'm just going to invite you to speak, Shukri. Um, or actually, um, I know I talk about this. So actually, for anyone that doesn't know, uh, who wasn't in my show last time, I will just quickly explain. I essentially had an employment tribunal in my NQT year with the first school that I worked at. Um, I did go on to win that tribunal some years later. It was for disability discrimination and how they treated me um, as a teacher with MS in my first year of teaching. Um, and one thing that I remember that I really loved that the judge uh, pointed out in her in the PDF that was published, which is easily accessible in Google if anybody wants to read it. One of the things that made me so happy that the judge um, really picked up on was um, the fact that like one of the things the school used in their defense is, um, you know, so there's reasonable adjustments, which is the adjustments you're meant to make for somebody according to the law for somebody with a disability. And a lot of the time what the school used to defend themselves was basically saying, but but Yasmin never asked for that. So like, why would we put that in place? And the judge, I mean, she mentioned it during the trial and she also mentioned it in the document that was eventually published. But she said it's not fair to essentially rely on me to be the one to tell the school all of the adjustments that I need and the judge pointed out that I was newly diagnosed and therefore would likely not know what the things that I need are and I feel like Gemma you've kind of touched on this a lot and so have you Melissa that a lot of the time sadly you know teachers especially when they're newly diagnosed or because a lot of conditions are variable don't always know what it is that they need 
So, um, hi, Shukri. I can see that you've joined. How are you doing? I'm great, Danny. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Um, I really loved what you were saying last week. And as promised, we're at our part two, although we're towards the end of it now. Um, yeah. I just wanted to say, for anyone that might not have been here two weeks ago, would you like to uh, share what you told us last time? So, you know, a bit about who you are, where you are where you are at the moment, etc. Yeah, so um, I'm a school directs uh, trainee in a comprehensive in London. Um, I've been, uh, yeah, I've been using the wheelchair for the last, I don't know, most of my life actually, so throughout school and throughout uni, and now, um, I've been doing this for, this training, like, in placement for the last, um, maybe four weeks now, uh, I had, like, three, four weeks for half time, and, yeah, I had, like, loads of, um, reasonable adjustments kind of made, having support worker in the building, just in case I needed any support, or, um, or even, you know, having classrooms kind of divided up, so you can have an aisle in the middle, and then kind of move around with students, and kind of helping them here and there, and my subject is English, so, um, Fortunately, there isn't, you know, a lot of practical things and everyone can kind of stay in their seats. You know, if I was doing science, probably would have been a little bit harder. But thankfully, um, I'm doing English. Everyone's kind of sitting in their seats and a lot of them is quite writing. Um, and a lot of my, my other disability is um, I'm partially hard of hearing. So I use, you know, a lot of microphones to kind of, that goes directly to my hearing aids and I can kind of hear students and I play them around the classroom so I can hear as many students um like in a uh, 360, like omni thing kind of way. Uh, and that's been pretty useful because I can then understand who, who's speaking at the back and not, you know, I can read something if I, if, it, if things, everyone's, get, you know, doing pair work or something. And it's been really useful. And I'm, yeah, there's just lots of learning, um, considering I'm still a trainee and I'm still doing, you know, my seven hours right now. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited. <laughs> Honestly, Shukri, it's so nice to have you here. And, like, I honestly haven't forgotten what you said two weeks ago. I'm so happy to hear that, you know, your school have, um, you know, employed you and are training you as the first member of staff with uh, in a wheelchair at that school. I also love what you said about the students. You know, I think students are amazing. And I think that a lot of the time children will accept what you teach them to accept. And I really like the fact that, you know, they've been supportive and positive of you um, and, you know, I just honestly, Shukri, I'm in awe and I really love that. I think it's so, so amazing. Thank is there you. you wanted to throw in today? I don't know if you heard earlier what Melissa and Gemma were saying, but is there no, any? No, I hadn't. But um, yeah, I'm just wondering whether they could just kind of talk about, you know, adjustments that we have to make for our own teaching practice because I've realised that, you know, I can't write things on the board and model aunties there and there on the board uh on like on a whiteboard for example and everything kind of has to be I have to think you know way around what I can do to ensure that my students still get the level of care level of teaching that you know that they would get from another everybody oh I totally hear that Shukri that's a really really good point and you know there is so much variation amongst um staff with disabilities and there's just so many different ways in which you know, they can be supported. So what do you do in those um, kind of situations, Shukri? Like, what do you do to um, help you in your teaching? Um, so, yeah, 
so right now I have, I've got the two things at least. Um, I've got a clicker, so then you know I don't have to stay at the front to kind of um teach really. I can go I can go to the back and go to like the middle and kind of speak there and kind of have my have, have myself being heard uh, at you know at whenever and kind of you know having that hands free thing so that I can kind of just you know be smooth and you know not have to kind of stop just to kind of you know do the Go, go to the next slide which can take a lot of dead time um but what i also have is a visualizer which kind of is like a camera thing that kind of points to my i don't know to my uh, desk and i can just kind of write and do you know answer modeling and you know just kind of showing what i want them to take in really uh whether i'm marking you know, a piece of work or if i'm kind of doing an answer with them then they know without me having to write it on the board or if I want to um, do mind math, I can do that on, on, on a visualizer. And, you know, they're really accepting and they just kind of get it. Okay, fine. Um, but yeah, that's really a lot of things. Um, also, I get the students to hand out things. You know, oh. I don't, because I can't do it. And they're really helpful. They just, they always want to, they always, they always want to, they always start to like put their hands up and offer it, which I'm really thankful for as well. Yeah. Um, no, I totally, I totally hear what you're saying, um, Shukri. I think that's completely amazing, you know, that you've kind of figured out ways to kind of get around this and that the students are helpful. I think getting students to hand out worksheets is definitely, I just think it's such a great thing to do as a teacher. Children, I think, generally are so helpful. They always want to kind of help. There's always at least one kid in the class, you know, who wants to help their teacher. And I think I've always found, I've never told the children it's specifically because I have MS but I have always um, had a book monitor for every class that I teach and at least one person who I could just look at and know they'll happily get up and hand out <laughs> worksheets for me um, and I just think it's something that helps me so much you know kind of avoiding circulating around the class so many times you know they always help me with things like that and also carrying heavy things and you know I just think children are amazing and they're the best part of teaching with a disability I feel like the help I've had from children far outweighs anything and you know they often make my day and I absolutely love that so last question I have for you Shukri is what do you think as somebody with a disability what do you think um, a school could do so it doesn't have to be specifically for your conditions but what yeah. do you think a school could do to support staff with disabilities just um, because of the fact that you know so, so little is known about chronic illnesses what do you think um schools could do to be supportive of staff with disabilities um i think they can kind of set up an initiative where uh people can send in anonymously what they want as like regional adjustments that they you know that if they don't want to like you know publicize it or something that can be quite that can help everyone in the entire school so say for example you know um you know we need to use more clickers we need to use more whiteboards or something like that or um stuff that would kind of help all teachers but especially those who are disabled uh and then kind of have a talk about it with you know i don't know so you can kind of have a discussion about whether to do a school-wide policy that's just something i kind of thought about as i'm doing but um and just kind of having you know having the ability to just talk to SOT um, and, you know, line managers kind of freely and having, you know, some trust in that, you know, they won't really discriminate. I've, I don't know. I've been quite lucky so far that, you know, my line manager, my head of year and 
you know, all the, all the staff have been quite, you know, helpful and kind of given that, you know, that that ear of, you know, that they want to they want to help and they want to, you know, listen. So, yeah, I think something like that might help everyone, and then that can also help, you know, those who are disabled and also probably even students. Yeah. Honestly, I completely agree with what you're saying, and that is so lovely to hear. Um, I think what's what I have always found really supportive in my career. Um, I mean, I don't have it now, but I did in the last few years. Is um, a school business manager who uh, you know was really supportive of me. I remember, you know, she was somebody that always used to say to me, "Anything you need or anything that you're worried about, you know, just come and speak to me." And just knowing that there was somebody that I could, you know, to kind of go to and I did often run to her office you know that I could just kind of speak to at any time like she never turned me away you know I've showed up where she's been in meetings where she's been on the phone I've been to her office so many times I remember even once going to her office um to kind of share my thoughts on something to do with you know the hot weather accelerating my fatigue and I ended up sitting there for about an hour and then said oh my god I'm so sorry you've probably got a lot to do but at no point did she say she was so busy or that she was busy despite me knowing that she always was really busy and um you know it was something that always helped me you know it helped me have good attendance to know that actually I can um get sent home if I feel unwell and so that would give me the confidence to come in whereas previously if I I knew that a sc- the school I worked at before that wouldn't send me home if I was unwell. So I would often not risk going in if I wasn't well. And so just to Gemma and Melissa really quickly, I just wanted to ask you, um, is there anything in your time in teaching that you feel has really helped you to cope with your condition, irrespective of whether the person doing it knew that you had that condition or not? If you guys are still there. Yeah, I'm still here. Thank you. I really enjoyed listening to Shukri as well. Um, I don't think I think the only thing is what I mentioned earlier like I say I'm still quite early in my journey with this um, but it it was it's having and I have them now as well thankfully um, members of my department or my immediate line manager who create a culture where you can talk to them like you were saying about the business manager Um, if it's difficult to go and talk to somebody if you create that culture in your school then people aren't going to raise things or talk about things openly Um, that was that was the most important thing for me. Um, I think you asked the question earlier as well, like what what thing would I want schools to know? Um, and I don't know if people on this um, on the radio are familiar with the medical and social models of disability. Um, I'm not going to go into detail. I think people can go away and, and look it up. But I think I would want schools to be familiar with that distinction and think about the way they run their organisations under that, with that understanding about how, um does the way you run the school and the way you run the organization create difficulties for people with disabilities that don't need to exist otherwise oh honestly Gemma that's so amazing and I completely agree with you you know I do feel like there needs to be a part three but I'm not going to do it for the next one I'm just going to save that for later on um towards the end of this year um I just want to thank you all for having contributed and for everybody that's listened Melissa Gemma and also Ms Shaheen who's now gone and Shukri thank you guys so much for contributing it makes me so happy to know you know that there are teachers who are happy to kind of openly disclose their conditions I think it'd be really nice for us to be able to continue with the four where we can support each other i know there's this new feature on twitter called twitter communities so i might just set one up today where we can all just kind of um share links and things that we might that 
might support other teachers. And if there's anyone else that wants to join that, feel free to, I'll tweet about it later today. And, um, you know, maybe we can just kind of continue discussions there. But I really want to thank you guys. I feel like this, um, this session has meant a lot to me as a teacher with MS. It's been really nice to listen to and hear all of your um, opinions and, you know, experiences. And, you know, it reminds me of when I was first diagnosed and how much I would have appreciated having, uh, you know, people like you guys around me in the teaching profession at the time. But, you know, it's never too late. And honestly, I'm so happy that you guys came. And I want to thank all of the listeners today and Tom as well. Thank you, everybody, um, for coming. And, um, you know, if you have any questions, feel free to send them. Thank you. Thank you, Yasmin. Thank you, everyone. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you, everybody.